presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. This is our fourth study in Paul's letter to the Galatians that I've, that I've entitled a call to freedom. Today we take up uh, his the defense of the gospel of grace by talking about uh, justification and uh, his, uh, the, way he, the way he argued for justification by faith. Uh, this study is about Abraham and justification by faith primarily. Paul does present uh, seven different arguments, and we can preview those uh, very briefly. He will talk about the Galatians' own experience, and then he'll talk about the precedent of Abraham, and we'll talk about why, and he'll refer to the contemporary legal system at that time. That's, that's about as far as we'll get uh, in this session. So the question arises, well, if, if, you, if you cannot be justified by works of the law, you can only be justified by grace, then why did God even bother to give the law? And so he's going to talk about what is the true purpose of the law, and he'll explain to us about how the law reveals our sin to us. The law acts like a mirror. It can't fix us, but it can show us what's wrong with us. He'll also uh, argue regarding the believer's new position in Christ. He'll make a personal appeal, and then he will end his argument regarding justification by faith with a uh, with a with an allegory uh, about Abraham's two boys, Ishmael and Isaac. So, uh, just again by way of review, let's talk about what justification is. Very often, you'll hear people. Um, say this uh, to define justification they say well justification means just as if I never sinned well that's a that's a cute way to say it but it's really it really doesn't express what justification really is justification is that act of God whereby he God declares the believing sinner righteous in Christ Jesus now remember uh, in the United States court system, there is a presumption of innocence. You're innocent until you're proven guilty. But in God's court, there is a presumption of guilt. Uh, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There, there are no exclusions. The only perfect person who ever lived was the Lord Jesus Himself. And thank God He did, because we need His perfect righteousness in order to be in right standing before before God. So, but that that brings up the question: If if God declares a believing sinner to be righteous, then how is it that God can even do that? Because God is holy Himself. How can a holy, just, and righteous God uh, declare any of us uh, to be righteous? To give us any sort of right standing? when obviously we are indeed sinners. We're sinners by birth, we're sinners by nature, we're sinners by choice. And that's what Paul is going to be uh, writing about, and we'll, uh, and we'll be discussing that. And that is that uh, that's the whole purpose in Christ's coming. Uh, he lived uh, his, his, what you call his active obedience was his perfect life, and that perfection through faith in Him and His finished work is, uh, is accounted to us who believe in Him. And then there is His uh, passive obedience. His active obedience is His keeping of the law in every respect. Perfect obedience. But then His uh, passive obedience is His willingness to go to the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice for all those who will believe in him. So let's pick up the uh, let's pick up the story of Paul's argument in Galatians chapter three, 
And uh, he's going to begin in these first five verses by talking about the Galatians' own experience. Remember that the Judaizers had been following Paul around. And everywhere Paul, and during this first missionary journey where he and Barnabas had, had gone and been preaching, the Judaizers would come in and say, well, now they, you know, they did a pretty good job telling you uh, about, uh, about Jesus. And you sure need to believe in Jesus. But uh, and and what Jesus did, and that He is the Son of God. But uh, but you also need to remember this: that Jesus Himself was a Jew, and God did give the give the law to the Jews. So if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, uh, you guys are going to have to be circumcised. All of you are going to have to start keeping kosher. Uh, you're going to have to start celebrating these feast days. There, there are just a, a lot of things. It's not just as simple as trusting in Jesus the way Paul and Barnabas were telling you to do. So that's the reason for Paul's writing this letter. And so the first thing he's going to talk about is he's going to talk about, well, how is it that you guys were saved? Were you saved by trying to keep the law? Or were you saved by... Trusting in the finished work of the Lord Jesus and and His righteousness being applied to you, His taking away all of your sins, and so that's the argument that He's going to make in Galatians chapter three, and He doesn't mince any words. He says, "Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You, you? It's like you're under a spell. What is the matter with you people?" You trusted Christ. He made a difference in your life. Your lives were filled with peace and joy. And these guys came along and they started preaching this stuff. And some of you are buying into it. It's like you are under a spell. What in the world is the matter with you? Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Notice, it's important in the proclamation of the gospel, and in fact, we're not proclaiming the gospel if we don't talk about the crucifixion of Christ. Why is that necessary? Because Christ had to die for sins. The wages of sin is death. We all have the uh, the sentence of death on us. Not only physical death that we all will face someday, but also spiritual death. We are but we're spiritually dead. Uh, before we come to know Christ, we're born into the world that way, and we will be permanently spiritually separated from God for all eternity if something doesn't happen in our lives to uh, to set us right with the uh, with with the Lord God Almighty Himself. And Paul makes the point that look, when we preach to you, we preach to you the crucified Christ. He said, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? When the Spirit came to indwell you Galatians, was it because of all the right stuff that you were doing because you started doing this and you started doing that? And the answer is obviously no. Did you receive the Spirit of of, uh, did you receive the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the answer is obvious. It was through faith, faith in Christ. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Okay, you started off by trusting in Christ, and that's how the Spirit came to indwell you. Are you now being perfected by the flesh, that is, by by trusting your own works you, you start off this way but now you know I'm not going to trust in Christ anymore uh, he's, he saved me from the from hell fire and uh, but now what I need to do is I need to uh, I need to trust in all this stuff that I can do and he says what is the matter with you are you now being perfected by the flesh? And it's written in such a way that it requires a negative answer. No, you can't be perfected by the flesh. The flesh the flesh in the believer is no better than the flesh in the unbeliever. He says, he goes on to say, Did you suffer so many things in vain? 
Now, remember, and he's, when he says suffering, he, he's he's talking about the fact that they were they were uh, treated miserably by uh, by the Jews who lived around them, who gave them a hard time for trusting in Christ, uh, and then they're misused by these Judaizers. He says, "Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the Spirit to you?" Who is that? That's God. And works miracles among you? Who's that? That's God. Does He do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? What what are you trusting in? Why, why are you trusting in the things that you can do? Why are you why are you believing these Judaizers who tell you that the way to really please God and be acceptable to God is by being circumcised, by keeping kosher, by keeping all these feast days, the new moons, the holy day? Why what what is the matter with you people? You started off right, but now you've gotten off track. And then he says this. So he's he's confronted them with their own experience to start with. You started off right, but now you're messing up. And then in verse 6, he introduces the precedent of Abraham. Now remember, a precedent is a a legal ruling that serves as an example for, for subsequent rulings. He says, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham, and then he quotes from Genesis fifteen six, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, why even introduce Abraham? I, I guess that's one of the first questions that popped into my mind when you when you read through some of this. Because he's making an argument from the Old Testament Scriptures. Well, how well do the uh, Galatians know the Old Testament Scriptures? Remember, these are people who have been Hellenized. That is, they have grown up in Greek culture uh, from the from the days of uh, of Alexander the Great through the Persians. Uh, they've just been they've just been inundated with Greek culture. In fact, that's one of the reasons he's going to. Uh, one of his arguments is in verse 15 is going to be related to that, as we shall see. So why, why does he even bring these, these up? Because the, obviously the Galatians would not be all that familiar with the Old Testament, having you know been uh, just steeped in Greek culture. I think the reason that he brings it up is simply because of what the Judaizers are doing. They're introducing and say, look, old, old Abraham, yeah, he's the, he's the father of the faithful. But remember, Abraham was circumcised. And Abraham did this and Abraham did that. And if you're going to be a, a son of Abraham, you've got to do so and so and so and so. And so he just says, okay, if they want to argue Abraham, let's talk about Abraham. Because uh, one of the good things about talking about Abraham was that Abraham came over 400 years before God even gave the law. And so that's going to be a real positive because Abraham kind of does set a precedent here. You know, God simply made a promise to Abraham. Remember the Abrahamic covenant, God promised him three things. He promised him land, that is a piece of real estate, because Messiah was coming. Messiah had to have a place to be born. He promised him a seed or offspring that was the Messiah. It was fulfilled initially by Isaac, but the whole emphasis is on the coming of the Messiah. And then the third aspect of the Abrahamic covenant was that of blessing. And that is this one who would come but would bring a blessing to the entire world. Well, certainly that was not Isaac. That was none other than the Lord Jesus. And as we proclaim the gospel, uh, blessing is brought uh, throughout throughout the world. So God had made a promise. And what did Abraham do? Abraham simply believed. He trusted in. He relied on uh, on God. And what did God do as a result of that? God reckoned it to him as righteousness. That is, God just accounted to him God's own righteousness. Not because of anything that Abraham did, 
but simply because Abraham believed what God had said. Same way with us in coming to faith in Christ. Do we believe that through trusting in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that that's all we need to be saved? And if we do, then God, as we repent of our sins, and as we trust in Him and Him alone, not in anything that we can do, God accounts uh, his, the righteousness of His own Son to us. He takes away all of our sin. And we're going to talk about that in, uh, uh, to a large extent uh, in, our, in our next session when we talk about the meaning of imputation, which we don't need to get into right now. Uh, verse 7 of Galatians 3. Now, remember, he's making his argument regarding uh, the precedent of Abraham that all Abraham did was when God made him a promise, Abraham just simply believed. Look, you Galatians, God made you a promise. If you'll trust in Christ, He'll save you. That's all you need to do. Not only will He save you uh, from your sins, uh, not only from the penalty of your sins, but He'll also save you from the power of your sins. Ultimately, He will save you from the very presence of your sins when He takes you to be with Him. But these Judaizers are trying to convince you that there's more to it than just simply trusting in what God said and believing what, he got, what God said. Verse 7, he goes on, Paul goes on and, and writes, Now then, I'm sorry, now know that. I'm, I, I apologize, I haven't really had a lot of trouble with my voice. <clears throat> know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. If you are trusting in Christ, Paul says, you are a son of Abraham. Not, not a physical son of Abraham. You are a spiritual son of Abraham. Verse 8, And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Now how in the world did God do that? Uh, you know, Jesus hadn't come in. I, we, we're talking about centuries before Christ came. Well, there's a quotation that he makes from Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. That God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, and this is the third aspect of that Abrahamic covenant, in you shall all the nations be blessed. That is... Just as you trusted in uh, in what I what I said to you, Abraham, that I would uh, that I would provide you with offspring, that I would give you a land, that I that that you would that you will be blessed and you will be a blessing. All the nations are going to be blessed through you, and 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 Paul makes the point here that in doing so, in saying this, that um, that God is essentially preaching the gospel. To Abraham, and and then Paul makes the point. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. Um, let's pause here for a minute and just uh, just think about uh, something back in Genesis chapter fifteen. Uh, at that point in in time. Abram, as he was known then, which means exalted father, and he came to be known as Abraham, the father of a multitude, uh, he was 75 years old at this point. And he was called by God, uh, and he was beginning to get older. In spite of the fact that God had made these promises, we, he still hadn't seen any fulfillment of, of the promises yet. And uh, in verse 2 of, Galatia, of Genesis 15, Abram said, Behold, you have, he's speaking to God, and he says, Behold, you've given me no offspring. In fact, he goes on to say, You know, it looks like the chief steward of my house, Eleazar, is, is going to wind up as my heir. And then in verse 4, it says, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Notice, God. what God does 
is God promises Abraham that he is going to be the head of a great, great company of believers. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And what did Abraham or Abram do? It says in verse 6 of Genesis 15, And he, Abram, believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted it to him, Abram, as righteousness. He imputed righteousness to him. He, he gave him his own, he, he declared him to be righteous. Why? Was it because of anything that Abram had done? No, it was simply because Abram embraced the promise that God had made that he would be the father of a multitude of nations. Now, then the covenant is, uh, is cut a little bit later on in the chapter, beginning at verse 12 of Genesis chapter 15. As it, said, it says, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Now, remember what God had done is He told Abram, He said, all right, now you get these various animals and birds and you, you cut them up, uh, you sacrifice them. And what they would do is they would put them in two, uh, two rows parallel to one another. And then the people who were making the covenant in those days would walk between those uh, dead animals. And essentially they would make the promises. Well, I promise that I'll do so and so. And you promise that you'll do so and so. As you pass between those uh, dead animals. And as that happened, uh, there was also uh, a curse that would be pronounced. And, and essentially the curse was, if you don't keep your word... Uh, what you promise that you'll do, then you're going to wind up the same way that these animals uh, have wound up. Uh, that you're going to be dead. So Abram has spent the afternoon <clears throat> getting everything ready, uh, sacrificing the animals, placing them in in those parallel rows, and waiting. And it says in verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. Now who is he talking about? He's talking about the, the children of Israel when they were in bondage in, uh, in Egypt. They were Abraham's physical offspring. No question about that. Verse 14. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, the Egyptians. Obviously, that's a reference to them. What kind of uh, uh, judgment did God bring them? Those, that's with those ten plagues that uh, that fell on Egypt. When uh, you remember Moses would go and say, "Let my God," the, the Lord says, "Let my people go, so that they can worship me." And uh, and Pharaoh, well, who is the Lord? I don't know the Lord. And it, uh, repeatedly it says that the, uh, the Lord hardened his heart uh, because the Lord was going to show himself powerful in the, land, uh, in the land of Egypt. I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Uh, as for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. You, you're not going to see any really rough times. Uh, you're gonna you're you're gonna go to the grave in in good shape, Abram. And they, uh, that is these these offspring, they shall come back here in the fourth generation. That is back to the land of Canaan, and that would be under the leadership of Joshua, after they had been in bondage in Egypt, and also uh, after they had wandered in the wilderness for those forty years. Then it says in verse 17, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, <clears throat> behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. Notice, this. now, now pay really close attention. This is what's known as a unilateral covenant. Uh, normally, Two persons would pass between these dead pieces, dead animals, and make the promises uh, that they made. But what is Abram doing? He's sound asleep. I mean, he is—he's just getting some Z's. The only one who is making promises is God Himself. And so, 
It doesn't depend on what God is going to do in giving Abram land and offspring and blessing to all of the world. None of that that God has promised depends on anything that Abram is doing because Abram is not making any promises right now. Abram is sound asleep. What does it depend on? It just simply depends on God who's promised to do it. So what is it that Abram has to do? All he has to do is say, yes, I believe that. I believe that you are God and that you will do exactly what you say. You see, the difference between what's going on here and then later on what would, what would happen with the giving of the law, the law essentially says this. It says, do this and you'll live. Well, what's the problem? Well, the problem is I can't do that stuff. I can't. I can't do all that the law requires. The Apostle Paul uh, really struggled with that. Remember, he was a he was a law keeping Pharisee for uh, a number of years prior to his conversion, and he talks about how blameless he was before the law. That doesn't mean he was sinless, but it means that uh, when he did mess up, that he knew exactly the right sacrifice to offer. But at one point in, uh, in the, his letter to the Romans, he talks about the fact that when it came to that tenth commandment, that's the one that really tripped him up. Because, you know, he, he, could, he could keep from committing adultery. He could keep from stealing. He could keep from blaspheming God. He could keep from doing all, these kind, all those kinds of things. But he said when it came to that tenth commandment, he says, the one that says you shall not covet. He discovered that there was something in his heart, something in the innermost part of his being that just rose up inside him. And that something was sin. Jesus elaborates on all of that in the Gospels when he says, you know, it's been said to you don't commit adultery, but I say to you, if you have lust in your heart toward a woman, then uh, you've already committed adultery. See, it's, it's, coveting is the idea of wanting something. Uh, it's having a desire for something that we don't need to have a desire for, something that uh, is, uh, is, is not going to be good for us. And Paul said, there's, there's nothing that I seem to be able to do to deal with that. And of course, the only thing that he found that did deal with it is the only thing that can deal with it with us, and that is not trying to keep the law not trying to do it on our own, not trying to live by our own works, but by simply believing in, trusting in, relying on what Christ Jesus has done on our behalf. Believe the Gospel. Believe that Jesus died for our sins. And trust in Him, not only to to spare us from the penalty of sin, but also... That's what I need to, to help me deal with the power of sin. It's, it's not come to Jesus and now I'm on my own. It's come to Jesus and stick close to Jesus. Lord, what would you, what would you have me to do? You know, one of the things that I pray uh, practically every morning is, uh, <clears throat> is, is essentially something like this. I say, I say Lord... You know, I, I'm grateful for the good night's sleep. I'm, I'm grateful that you woke me up. I know there must be something that you have for me to do. And I'm grateful for that. And uh, Lord, today I know I'm going to face uh, challenges and uh, temptations. And Lord, I, what I want to do is I want to please you. I know that you've given me everything that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of, of Him who, who died for me. So Lord, help me not to rely on my own resources. Help me not to rely on my own schemes and my own devices for dealing with life. But help me, Lord, to depend upon You and to trust in You and, and to just depend upon Your guidance. That's, that's the kind of prayer that I'll that I usually pray in the uh, in the mornings, and it's uh, because that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to 
not only to trust in Him to be saved from the penalty of our sin, but to trust in Him from now on until that time that we are uh, that we are in His in His presence. So uh, Abraham is uh, uh, was saved uh, prior to the giving of the law at Sinai. It didn't have anything to do with the law, as the Judaizers were trying to convince the Galatians. Uh, through the through what he said, uh, he preached the gospel beforehand, and so he, the the inference is that even uh, in that uh, inherent in that promise that God made, Gentiles would be saved; they would become the spiritual offspring of uh, of Abraham through uh, simply trusting in what uh, God says about His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and in Romans chapter four, verses twenty and twenty one. Paul wrote, with respect to the promise of God, speaking of, uh, of Abraham, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. So it's not all up to me. You know, there's some people say, if it's going to be, it's up to you. It's up to thee. If it's going to be, it's up to me. No, if it's going to be, it's up to the Lord. Now, I need to cooperate with the Lord. I need to be submissive. I need to be obedient. But God is going to cause all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. We're not going to face any sort of accidents. Everything that comes into our life is some sort of incident. God sends it. He allows it to come. Whatever whatever terminology you want to use. But nothing comes our way as children of God that does not first pass through the hands of our loving God who has sent His Son to die for our sins. Now, uh, I got a little carried away. Of, boy, time's getting away from us, isn't it? Uh, notice uh, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, he goes on to contrast law-keeping and faith. Remember, uh, justification and uh, condemnation are exact opposites of one another. When we talk about justification, we're talking about being in right standing with God, that God has imputed the, uh, the, the, the perfect obedience of Christ to our account. And uh, externally, uh, we, I'm, I'm not externally, uh, when we talk about uh, eternal life, we're talking about uh, fellowship with God. I remember Jesus defined eternal life, and this is life eternal in John seventeen three that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now, what Paul's going to do in Galatians 3, verse 10 and following, and he, he's going to talk about two destinies and two different roads. There's a uh, there's a there's there's a, the road of my own efforts that is works, and there is the road of faith in Christ alone that is faith in His finished work. And there are two destinies. There is the destiny of blessing that is being accepted by God, and there is cursed cursing, and that is being rejected by God. And the only way that blessing comes into our lives is through faith in Christ alone, not through my own efforts of my flesh. That just will not work. You see, the, the failure in trying to keep the law always uh, resulted results in a curse. Uh, in James chapter 2, verse 10, it says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point. Hey, I kept, I kept 99% of it. That sounds like an A to me on the test. No. It says, Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. It's, it's, not, a, uh, uh, it's not a percentile test. It's a pass-fail test. If you don't keep it perfectly, you fail. Well, how many of us can keep it perfectly? None. The only one who ever did was the Lord Jesus Himself. And that is what is imputed to us through faith in Christ. Is we God imputes that record to our lives just as He took the record of all of our sins, all of our sins, and He imputed those or counted them to Christ. And then Christ died on the cross not for his own sins he didn't have any 
but for our sins. Sin always brings condemnation. And uh, so notice what he says in Galatians chapter 3. He's talking about these two alternatives. He says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Trying to do it yourself will put you under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. That's a quotation from Deuteronomy 27. Now, he goes on to say, It is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. And then he quotes from Habakkuk. How many of us would argue from Habakkuk? He says, For the righteous shall live by faith. We don't live by keeping the law. We live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. In other words, if you're going to try to keep the law, you're going to have to keep it all. Which, of course, is impossible. Christ redeemed us. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us. To redeem means to purchase out of the marketplace. Uh, We're sinners who are shackled. Our uh, wrists are shackled. Our our ankles are shackled. And we are standing there uh, slaves of sin. And through faith in Christ, He redeems us. He purchases us out of the marketplace. And the shackles come off. We're no longer slaves to sin. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You ever wonder why Jesus was crucified? Why didn't didn't the Jews just take Jesus out and just stone Him to death? Because by hanging Him on a tree, hanging Him on the cross... He became a curse for us. He took the curse that was due to me and to you. And He bore that curse Himself. Why? So that the blessing of pure obedience, His own obedience, would come to us and full forgiveness of our sins because our sins were taken away. Remember on the on the day of uh, uh, atonement, Yom Kippur, there were there were uh, two goats that would be presented by the old by the old high priest. One of them would be sacrificed uh, a sin offering, and then the other one was called a scapegoat. And the old priest, the old high priest, would lay both his hands on the head of that scapegoat, and he would confess all of the sins of all of the nation of Israel, and then a man. Uh, unidentified man would take that goat and would take it out into the wilderness and turn it loose. Those two goats are a picture. The first goat uh, sacrifice, that's the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. It was Him dying for the sins of His people. But what about that other goat that was taken off into the wilderness? It's a picture that God has separated us from our sins as far as the east is from the west. That goat would never be seen again. That goat would never, ever come back. We would only receive blessing from the Lord. We would be blessed through by embracing the gospel of the Lord Jesus. He goes on to say, For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, Now notice, not any other way, only in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. What's the blessing of Abraham? That's the Gospel. Paul just mentioned that, that the Gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham. The blessing of Abraham, that is, this, this one who is the ultimate offspring of Abraham, has come into the world and he has died for the sins of all of God's people. The blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we, we who are trusting in Christ, might receive the promised Spirit. How? Not by what we do, but by faith. That's salvation. That's receiving the Spirit. That is God taking up residence within us. Uh, now, in verse 15, he it's, it's almost an aside, as it were. But notice what he said. This is, a, this is one of his other arguments. He says... And he's talking about a human covenant here in verse 15. He says, to give a human example, brothers, even a man-made covenant, uh, even with a man-made covenant, 
no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now again, the, the thing that helps us understand the argument that he's making is that the Galatians had been Hellenized. They were, remember, they, they were just steeped in Greek culture. But, uh, and so, remember, one of the laws of the Greeks, and you see it even more so with the Persians who followed the Greeks, remember uh, uh, in, the, in the book of Daniel, when, uh, uh, when Daniel's associates became jealous of him, and they went to King Darius and said, King said, uh, we just think you're such a great guy. What we want you to do is we want you to proclaim something, uh, something special. And that is that nobody can ask anything of any God or anybody else except for you for the next 30 days. And if they do, uh, the, the, uh, the consequences will be to be thrown into the uh, lion's den. And Darius thought that was King Darius thought that was just a great idea. He was, I guess, eaten up with his own ego. Well, come to find out, the uh, Daniel, of course, was not going to bow to him. Daniel wasn't going to be asking him. He kept on praying the way he did. And Daniel's associates came back to the king and said, "Do you remember you signed this thing?" And they said this, they said, remember, you signed this thing that nobody could ask anything from any God anywhere except from you. And the law of the Medes and the Persians cannot be changed. And so, see, that's essentially what Paul is talking about here. He's saying, look, in, even in a man-made covenant, you, you, you people who are steeped in Greek culture, you realize that when you've established a will... That will can't be changed. Now you can draw up another will if you want to, but you can't. You can't amend the will that's been changed, and so uh, that's the point that he's making. So he's saying, "Look, once no one annuls it or adds to it, uh, once it's been ratified." And then he goes on back to make his point again, verse uh, sixteen. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings. Notice, Paul even uses the, uh, the number of a noun in, uh, in making his argument here. He says, the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. And what does that mean? Well, all you got to do is keep reading. It tells us. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, that is, after Abram, Abraham had lived and died, that law that came along does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. What did God tell Abraham? He said, all you got to do is believe what I'm telling you and the blessing will come. And he said, okay, now God gave the law 430 years later and we're going to talk about why later on. We'll talk about why God gave the law. But he says, hey, that covenant did not nullify in any way the promise that God had made to Abraham. For if the, verse 18, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now, one of the things that will help us, I think, probably with this, is to look uh, for a moment in Romans chapter 4. Uh, Paul is making the same argument. He just elaborates on it just a little bit. Notice what he says in Romans chapter 4, verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, that is, if God declared Abraham to be righteous based on what he did, then Abraham has something to boast about, but, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God. He didn't do a bunch of stuff. He just simply believed God and it was counted to him. It was imputed to him. It was accounted to him. It was reckoned to him as uh, righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as what is due. 
And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. See, again, he's, he's, he's simply making, making the argument that the way God dealt with Abraham predated the law. And this stuff that the Judaizers are preaching, that you've got to keep all these holy days and keep kosher and be circumcised and do all this, this said, absolutely not. All you've got to do is do what Abraham did, and that is just believe the promise of God. Believe that when Christ died on the cross, that He died for your sins, that through faith in Him, all of your sins are washed away and God declares you to be righteous. That is, He acquits you of all of your sins. He separates you from your sins as far as the east is from the west. And now it's a matter of walking hand in hand, moment by moment with Jesus until that day that you come into His presence. He goes on to say in verse 10, well, how, how then was it counted to him? How, how is it that God did that with Abraham? Was, was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was, it was not after, but before he was circumcised. In other words, circumcision didn't have anything to do with the blessing that God gave. That came later, after uh, uh, significantly later. It says he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. He was he was a Abraham essentially was a Gentile and he was uncircumcised. God made this promise to him and then after the covenant was ratified as, as God passed between those dead pieces of meat while Abram was asleep and uh, and made the promises and said, you know Abram, this really doesn't have anything to do with you. This is what I'm going to do. All you need to do is just trust me. Then he says, okay, now the sign of the covenant will be circumcision. But see, that, that came later. That's the argument that he's making here. He says he received, verse 11 says, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them and to us as well. And then, uh, let's see, I, I read a minute ago that, uh, that passage that follows. It says, uh, verse 20 says, No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him. Why was his, fa why, why was his faith counted to him as righteousness? Why did God impute righteousness to him? Because he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. What does that mean? That means he believed God. He believed that God would do it. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And God remains just even as He justifies the ungodly. Remember that? I love that old, uh, that old hymn that Horatio Spafford wrote. Remember Horatio Spafford was an attorney uh, who lost uh, uh, a number of his children uh, in a, uh, on an ocean voyage. And he's the one who wrote, It is well with my soul. And I think it's, uh, I don't remember whether it's the second or the third uh, stanza, but he says, uh, Oh, the, uh, oh, goodness, it just left me, but uh, the, the, the blessing of this glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. O oh my soul. Hmm. Look at one other passage. I put it in your notes um, as we try to begin to wind things up here. The passage, uh, it's in the left-hand column of your notes. It's from John chapter 8, verses 51 and following, where... 
Jesus is is talking about uh, some of these very things uh, about the, the 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 argument regarding the giving of the law and and God's justifying. Uh, notice what he says in John chapter eight, verse fifty-one and following, and he's talking to people, uh, scribes and Pharisees, who are really giving him a, a rough time. He says, "Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death." The Jews said to him, "Now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the." prophets yet you say if anyone keeps my word he will never taste death are you greater than our father abraham who died and the prophets died who do you make yourself out to be and jesus answered your father abraham rejoiced now when he says your father he's talking about not your spiritual father your father as far as the flesh is concerned yes you came physically through uh, isaac and uh, you through that line, uh, so physically you are the children of Israel, uh, the children of Abraham. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet fifty years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am. And what was what was Jesus saying? He was claiming to be God when he says I am. He said, Well, that's sort of a leap, isn't it? Well, all you gotta do is read the next sentence. It says so they picked up stones to throw at him. Why? Because they consider what he said is blasphemy. Well, Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. What what when, when was it that Abraham saw the the coming of Jesus? I think the the only answer that there really is to that is in Genesis 22, when God woke Abraham up in the middle of the night and He said, "Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and take him to the place that I designate and offer him up as a sacrifice to Me." and Abraham was obedient and uh, did exactly uh, what the Lord told him to do. Went to Mount Moriah, but it's interesting when you, if you if you read that story in Genesis 22, when uh, when they got to the foot of the mountain, uh, Abraham turned to his servants and said, "Okay, you you stay down here with the animals, and the boy and I are going to go up there and worship, and we will return." Notice, we're going up there. We're coming back, and the writer of Hebrews makes a, a makes a real point of of in that part of the story, where he says Abraham was convinced that the offspring, the physical offspring, and ultimately the 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 offspring, the Messiah, would come through the line of Isaac, and he was so convinced of it that. If God required him to sacrifice his only son up there on Mount Moriah, that God would have to raise that boy from the dead because God's promise was something that God would not fail to keep. And of course, uh, that's exactly uh, as Abraham was ready to plunge the knife into the boy's throat. Uh, God stopped him and... uh, uh, the the rest, as it were, is uh, is is history. So, what do we make of all of this in our in our waning moments here of the Bible study? Uh, I put several things in your in your notes there. Uh, clearly, the gospel of grace is Christ crucified. It's about His finished work on the cross. Uh, the gospel brings blessing to the believer in Christ. Uh, in uh, in terms of justification, the believing sinner is declared righteous, and that and the very righteousness of Christ is imputed to his account, and he is fully accepted by God. I, I don't have to keep doing things to be accepted by God. 
God accepts me not because of what I have done, but on the basis of what Christ has done on my behalf. And all I need to do is simply trust in Christ's finished work. And the other blessing, other than justification that Paul is talking about here, is the blessing of the Holy Spirit. That is that God's Spirit lives within the believer. And He guides us and encourages us and assures us. The Bible says the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. God's methodology of salvation from sin always, always, always has been the same. Salvation is not and never has been on the basis of any human error, on any human merit, I should say, any kind of good works, anything done like that. Let me say that again. Salvation is not and never has been on the basis of human merit or good works, whether it's trying to keep the law or any other means that a man can come, that a man could come up with. Rather, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The, the good works that God intends for us to produce uh, spring from the gratitude for what Christ has done for us. Not, not from an attempt to uh, ingratiate ourselves with God. We don't do good works to say, oh boy, this, this will, I'll really make points with Jesus if I do this. No, it's out of a sense of gratitude for what Christ has already done. I, the, I love the words of old Augustus Top Lady in his hymn, Rock of Ages, In my hand, no price I bring. What's the next phrase? Simply to thy cross I cling. And so if you and I turn from the grace of God in Christ to any kind of system of human merit, like the Galatians were trying to do, it is both foolish and it is futile. What it does is it appeals to our sinful pride. We think, well, if I do this... This, this will make me even more spiritual. When we do that, it reveals a misunderstanding of who God really is, and it also uh, reveals a misunderstanding of our human spiritual condition that we are utterly sinful, and that uh, the only good thing that can come from us is what Christ has done in us and through us. You know, look at the divine diagnosis that God gave through the prophet uh, Jeremiah in Jeremiah 2.13 where he says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. That's the first sin. They've forsaken me. Secondly, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. They've turned away from me and they're trying to do it on their own. Turn from the God of grace and turn to my own efforts, trying to establish my own righteousness, my own righteousness which never, ever, ever in a jillion years would be acceptable to God. The only righteousness that's acceptable to Him is the righteousness of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Justification is the exact opposite of condemnation. To be condemned is to be declared guilty. To be justified is to be declared not guilty or acquitted or righteous. It, it's an acquittal. But the Bible affirms that I am and I come into the world as a guilty sinner by birth, by nature, and by my actions. And God is holy and righteous so how can God remain consistent with His own nature if He by fiat declares me or you to be not guilty? And the answer is found in the doctrine of imputation. And that's going to be the subject of our next session. Praise be to God for His great grace and mercy that's found only in the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus. There are two roads. One road, Jesus talked about the two roads, the narrow road and the broad road. 
The broad road has to do with my own efforts, doing it my own way. You can have it your way. Yes, you can. You can have it your way. But that's the way that leads to destruction. It's the way to lead, that leads to cursing and rejection. And then there is the narrow road that Jesus talked about. That road is faith in Christ alone and in His finished work. And that's the road that leads to blessing. That's the road that leads to being accepted by the Lord Jesus Christ. God declares to all human beings, you and I are incompatible and I don't change. The only one that's going to change is going to be us. And the only way that we can change in a way that's acceptable to God is through faith in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to God. Let's pray. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. Write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.